Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We're in a series we're calling Christianity 101, in which we are examining the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. Presently, we're looking at what we believe about the Bible, its validity and reliability, its authority in our lives. In this message, we're going to focus on how to study the Bible effectively. One of the key principles that came out of the Protestant Reformation is the principle of Scripture alone, meaning the Bible is our sole authority in matters of faith and practice. That was our focus uh, last time. Another key principle that came out of the Reformation was making the Bible available to all the people. Now, prior to the Reformation, church leaders were very reluctant to put the Bible in the hands of the common people because they were concerned that they would misinterpret, that they would misrepresent the Scriptures. Well, their concern was justified because following the Reformation, as the Bible became increasingly available to the people, there were some who did misinterpret There were some who did misrepresent the scriptures. They used the Bible to justify all kinds of ungodly attitudes and behaviors and even to start cultic movements. However, even though this is unfortunate, an unfortunate byproduct of that decision, the answer is not to keep the Bible from the people. No, the answer is to equip people how to study the Bible effectively. Dr. R.C. Spruill writes, the principle of private interpretation does not mean that God's people have the right to interpret the Bible in whatever manner they wish. God wants to communicate to us primarily through the scriptures, to read it, to meditate on it, and discover the truths of the Bible. However, we have a responsibility to study it carefully and to interpret it correctly. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his disciple Timothy, and by inference to us today, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now the phrase correctly handles the word of truth literally means to cut it straight, to be precise. In the same um, way, kind of precision that a surgeon uh, has when operating on someone. Now, if a surgeon was operating on me, I would want him to do so precisely and according to proven time-tested procedures. I would not want the surgeon to try a new procedure on me, you know, based on a theory he has, and he just wants to try it. Well, we need to have the same kind of concern over mishandling the Word of God. Because if, if we do mishandle it, it can negatively impact the lives of people. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.16 that ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Our task is to know and communicate the word of God, not to edit it. Our responsibility is to apply its truth to our lives, 
not try to make it fit our lives and our desires. And so this is why, as part of the Christianity 101 series, I want to help us all grow in our understanding of how to study and interpret the Bible. But first, let us pray. Would you stand uh, with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, I just want to again thank you for your word and Lord for making it available to us. You didn't just create us and then walk away. You want to uh, reveal yourself to us. You did it, Lord, through creation, through your son Jesus, and also through your written word. We ask now, Lord, as we seek to understand uh, how we might uh, study it fully, and apply it to our lives, Lord, that you would focus our minds, you would soften our hearts, Lord, and you would give us uh, the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what are the key steps involved in studying the Bible effectively? Well, before we look at the actual steps for studying the Bible, it's important we know some of the prerequisites for studying the Bible effectively. Before we even open the Bible, we need to ask ourselves at least three questions. And the first one is, do I know and trust the author of the Bible? At 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says this, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And what Paul is saying here is, unless you put your trust fully in God, the Bible won't make any sense to you. You won't be able to grasp the spiritual truths of Scripture. And we're going to have to stop right now. There's an amp here that's going crazy. Can we just get someone out here to turn it off? Thanks. Sorry. So let me just backtrack here, and we'll hopefully get this amp taken care of. Um, anyways, maybe I'll just take care of it. I don't know what you do. Do you, you, just, uh, you just turn it off, or do you kick it? Um, I'm not really sure. There we go. I turned it off. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll cut this part out, okay? <laughs> Pretend it never happened. All right. Okay, so having just read this passage here in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, what Paul is saying here is unless you put your trust fully in God, the Bible won't make any sense to you. You won't be able to grasp the spiritual truths of Scripture. And that's because it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach and to enlighten your understanding of the scriptures. But he will only be able to do that in your life if he's in your life. And that only happens when you put your total trust in Jesus Christ and invite him into your life. You see, that's why people who are only half-hearted in their commitment to God often conclude that Christianity doesn't work for them. Christianity didn't work for them because they never really tried it. They never really put their faith fully in the Lord and followed him all out. 
To put it bluntly, they trusted Christ for what he could do for them. And when he didn't come across with the goods that they were expecting from him in the timeline that they had set, they walked away convinced that Christianity doesn't work. Friends, knowing God involves more than just studying all the reasons for believing God and coming to the rational conclusion in your mind that that God must exist. Knowing God involves more than just learning more about God. You know, coming to services like this and reading the Bible just for the content. I mean, that's part of it. But the other part of knowing God is found in experiencing the reality of God in the context of life itself. And that won't happen unless and until you put your trust fully in God, you invite him to invade and to control your life, and you live out the life that he wants you to live, even if you haven't figured it all out in your head yet. That's the first prerequisite for effective Bible study, knowing and trusting the author of the Bible. The second question we need to ask ourselves in preparing to study the Bible is, do I believe the Bible is God's word? Well, as I said last time, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that people today and even some Christians today rarely open the Bible, much less study it, is because they are not convinced it's true and reliable. They're not convinced it's actually God's word. Now, if that's where you are, then I want to challenge you to take a step of faith and begin to investigate the validity of the Bible. There's so much, so many resources out there that's available uh, to us these days. Go online and watch the Why Believe series or just go to the Appleseed Ministry and pick that up. Or, or I just noticed that they're, they're offering the Why Believe course um, on Tuesday nights in our chapel here at, at uh, Central Campus, beginning February 9th. Sign up and get into discussion with people about this. Folks, make this a front burner item in your life because if you ignore it, you need to understand that every day that goes by that you're not in the Word and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are losing out on God's very best for you. You're losing out on the friendship that Jesus wants to have with you and all that he wants to do through you. And then thirdly, before you open your Bible and study it, ask yourself, is my heart and my life right with God and with other people? If we want the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to enlighten us um, to the understanding of the Scriptures, it is critical that we prepare our heart to study the Scripture by surrendering ourselves anew to Him each and every day, surrendering our pride to Him, asking Him to, uh, confessing our sins to Him, the issues we have with other people, letting it go. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything in your time in the Word. In 1 John 2.27, the Apostle John, referring to the Spirit, says, But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Remain in him. So there are some of the key prerequisites for studying the Bible effectively. So what are the actual steps involved in studying the Bible? 
effectively. Well, there are three key steps, and they are observation, interpretation, and application. First of all, observe the passage that you're studying. The big question in this step is, what does it say? Approach the Bible passage like a detective investigates a crime. Observe all the details that you can in the scripture that will give you clues about what the author is really saying. Approach it like a young man approaches a love letter that he receives from his girlfriend. I mean, you know, when you get a love letter from your girlfriend or when a young man does, I mean, he reads it over, you know, four to six times, tries to look at all the little nuances. Why did she say that and not that? Read it with that kind of eagerness and seriousness. This is a love letter from our God. Every word, every detail is important. Note any comparisons and contrasts. Note whether the passage is a teaching passage or, or whether it's historical passage or a poetical passage or whether it's prophetical in its literary form. Ask the six W questions. Who, what, where, why, and when. That's the first step. Observe the passage. The second step is interpret the passage. Whereas observation asks, what does it say? Interpretation asks, what does it mean? The goal of interpretation is to understand what the author was trying to say to his original readers. And this is a very critical step. And so I'll be going into greater detail on that particular step in a few moments. And then the final step of the study phase is the application. And what I call the action step. The big question here is, what is God saying to me? How does this apply to my life? Are there examples that I need to follow? Are there commands I need to obey? Are there sins that I need to forsake? Are there promises that I need to claim? Are there new thoughts about God that I need to learn and understand? Are there principles that I need to live by? Now, it is possible to determine how a passage applies to you without ever doing anything about it, which is why I added these, the word action to the application phase. Some, some Christians never grow or change because week after week, as they read their Bible, as they attend their Bible study and a church service, they celebrate knowing more about God. At times, they may even testify that God spoke to them through a Bible passage or through a sermon. But too often, it never translates into action, into actual change in our lives. And that's tragic because the primary purpose of Bible study, the reason we were given the Word is not just to gain more information or Bible knowledge. No, the primary purpose is transformation. Life change to understand fully and enter into fully kingdom of God living. The night before his death, Jesus said to his disciples, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The apostle James added these words, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. The Bible is the word of God, which means it is God speaking, and 
His word demands a response. That response needs to be nothing less than doing what he calls us to do, to take action. And folks, that's why at the end of most every service, I've started asking these two important questions. And the first one is, Lord, what are you saying to me through this service? And secondly, Lord, what are you wanting me to do about it? What step, even small step, do you want me to take? So that's a brief overview of how to study the Bible effectively. In the time remaining, I want to revisit one of the Bible study steps. It's a very critical step that is often abused and misused. And that is the matter of interpreting Scripture correctly. Have you ever had someone say to you, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible, it's not mine? Or that's your interpretation of that particular verse, it's not mine? The suggestion, of course, is that there are many ways to interpret the Bible. Well, if such assertions are true, then Christianity is meaningless. And the Bible has no message for us, at least not a message that's worth listening to. I mean, if an individual can make the Bible say whatever he wants it to say, well, then the Bible cannot guide him or anyone else. It is merely a weapon in his hands to support his own ideas. So how can we ensure that we're interpreting the Bible correctly? Well, there are a number of standard principles of interpretation that are accepted and used by Bible scholars and, and other scholars alike, not only to interpret the Bible, but in many, many cases to interpret any book. The principles are fairly standard. Among the many Bible scholars I've consulted for this message are Max Anders and Paul Little, Tremper Longman, John MacArthur and R.C. Spruill. There's a whole list of others. So let's look at just a few of these principles. The first principle is this. Interpret the Bible literally. In other words, interpret the Bible as it is written. As you would read and interpret any normal book. A literal approach to Scripture recognizes that the Bible contains a variety of literary forms and interprets it accordingly. And so the historical accounts are treated as history. Poetry is treated as poetry. The parables are treated as parables. Prophecy or predictions of the future are treated as prophecy. And of course, the teaching passages are treated as instruction. Paul Little has written that even though there are some passages where it is difficult to determine whether they should be taken figuratively or literally, Overall, he says, it's no more difficult to distinguish between figurative and literal statements in the Bible than in a daily newspaper or a magazine that you might read. For example, if you were to read in the newspaper that the flames defeated the Oilers 2-1 last night, you would assume that that's a literal truth. But on the other hand, suppose you went further down the sports page and a reporter wrote the following play-by-play -play description of the winning goal. With only 15 seconds remaining in the game, Goudreau burned across center, faked a shot, 
undressed Davidson, feathered a beautiful pass to Monaghan and blasted a cannon past a stunned Talbot to score the winning goal and Flames fans went wild. Now it isn't hard to recognize that not all of the words used by this reporter are to be taken literally. A player may skate fast down the ice, but he doesn't burn down the ice. He may deke out another player, but he typically doesn't undress him on the ice unless they're in a fight. <laughs> Monaghan may have a hard shot, but he shoots pucks, not cannons. And even though there are some strange creatures in the stands, generally speaking, the crowd may jump up, yell, hug each other, but they usually do not go insane. That only happens in Edmonton. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you see, in the everyday affairs of life, no serious person intends what he says and what he writes to carry a diversity of meanings. And yet, you see, some people do precisely this in their interpretation of the Bible. And they do it in order to make Scripture say what they want it to say. To advance their own views, their own passions and desires, rather than accepting what the Bible really says. And so when you're dealing with a normal passage, and you're tempted to give it an other than literal interpretation, you need to ask yourself two questions. Number one, am I questioning this passage being literal because I do not want to obey it? And secondly, am I interpreting this passage figuratively or as an allegory because it does not fit my preconceived biases or ideas? Take the Song of Solomon as an example. For centuries, this book was interpreted as an allegory of a love relationship between Jesus and his church. Now, this interpretation is not entirely wrong because if you read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, human love is compared to Christ's love for his church. But just because there are parts in the Song of Solomon that are a little bit too racy, a little bit too descriptive, and a bit embarrassing for some people, doesn't give us license to dismiss the fact of what most Bible scholars today recognize. And that is the Song of Solomon is clearly a love poem whose primary message concerns the intimacy of human love. And so interpret the Bible literally. Principle number two, let the Bible interpret itself. The Bible is its own best source of explanation. Many times, what is obscure in one particular passage is made clear in another passage. So let's say that you're studying uh, uh, a particular scriptural verse and it has two possible interpretations. Well, the next step would be to see how it compares with the rest of scripture. You would ask yourself, how is this word or this phrase being used in the rest of scripture? Is it, is it used anywhere else? Now, if you find it being used elsewhere and you find that one interpretation that you're thinking of goes against the rest of Scripture, 
while the other one is in harmony with the rest of Scripture, well, then obviously the latter interpretation is used. Furthermore, never base a key doctrine or moral teaching on an obscure or an unclear Scripture passage. This is where a lot of cultic groups go astray. Dr. Tremper Longman says the most important teachings in the Bible are stated more than once. And they're generally stated clearly. When a scripture passage teaches something obscure or difficult, and we can find no other passage or no other clear teaching passage to support it, we must not attach too much significance to it. And I point this out because there are Bible teachers all in an attempt to gather a following who will build a whole theology around a little phrase or a short passage that they find in Revelation or somewhere else. And they will focus so much attention on it that in time they'll move their followers or influence their followers to, to major on the minors, to miss the whole point of Scripture and to get myopic about one little um, theological principle. And they miss the whole key uh, message of the Bible. We need to be alert to this kind of deception. All that to say we must remember that even though there are 66 books in the Bible, it is fundamentally one book because God is the ultimate author of the whole Bible. So we need to always interpret Scripture in light of the whole message, the whole counsel of God, the whole Word of God. Principle number three, interpret the passage in its context. Ron Rhodes tells the story of a woman who entered the governor's race for the state of Texas. When she received the official list of the names from the primary, she saw that her name was printed last. Shortly before that, she had read in her Bible in Matthew 19, many that are first will be last, and the last will be first. On that basis, she thought God was telling her that she would win the election. And she proceeded to share this with quite a few others. Well, she lost big time. And I draw that to your attention because the Bible needs to be interpreted in its proper context. Taken out of context, the scriptures can be twisted to say just about anything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes these words, It is good for a man not to marry. Hey guys, how do you feel about that? Oh, there is one, there is one fan. Um, now you pull this verse out by itself, and you would have a proof text for celibacy you see, and a lot of confused and frustrated men and women. And yet, if you read the paragraph that surrounds the verse, and in particular the entire chapter, you get a much different picture. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul clarifies he's not saying no one should marry. He indicates it's okay to marry. It's just that you should count the cost before marrying, which is very, very very good advice. <laughs> Again, the point is we should never use Scripture like this out of context. 
just to support our viewpoint or to advance our cause or to have our way. No verse of scripture can be divorced from the verses around it or even the entire book that we find it in. The ultimate context of any Bible verse is the whole Bible. And so if you want to ensure that you're reading in context, avoid only reading little snippets of Scripture and drawing conclusions from a verse apart from its context. Constantly ask yourself, how does this verse fit into uh, the, the message of the whole chapter, of the whole book, or even the whole Bible? Okay, so that's the first three principles of interpreting the Bible effectively. We're going to look at the remaining principles next time. I'll close with this. Back in 1980, Gwen and I had the opportunity to visit what was then the Soviet Union, uh, now Russia, before the wall of communism came down. At that time... I'm not sure what it's like now, but at that time, it was a, uh, there was just a lot of oppression in that nation under the rule of communism. And while we were there, we visited the only evangelical church in Leningrad, now called uh, St. Petersburg. The church was completely packed. Every seat was taken. People stood four deep down the center aisle, uh, two deep on the side aisles. They filled up every square foot at the back of the church. Many were standing outside, just leaning in, trying to hear what was being said. Because we were dressed in uh, like typical Westerners, the pastor spotted us immediately and invited us to join him on the platform of the church. The service lasted, you know, just under three hours. And as we observed the people who were there, we were right on stage, so we couldn't help but observe. Uh, We could tell by their receptivity that they were hungry for the truth of God's word. They didn't listen to just one sermon. They listened to three sermons in that particular service. And as I sat there, I was just so moved. Because I saw a hunger that I hadn't seen in a long time. I thought about Christians back in Canada. And I wondered, do do we have that kind of hunger for God's word? People will spend hours watching television, surfing on the net, or involved in other forms of entertainment, but they complain that they have no time for studying or hearing God's word. John Carvalho, he says, in some churches, messing with the length of the service is worse than stealing money from the offering plate. The idea of a sermon longer than 30 minutes is often seen as unacceptable. Why is this? Well, social commentators say it's because there's a decline in people's attention spans. And they blame television and the internet in particular. And they may be right. But I wonder if it's deeper than that. I wonder if it's a reflection of what's going on inside of us. Are we losing respect for God's word as its value, its authority in our lives? Again, Carvalho says, we grow impatient when a service goes over. And yet he asks, even if it goes over 15 minutes, what would we we be doing instead? 
He says, I suspect we'd be doing this side of nothing. And he asks, what could we possibly be doing that's more important than growing in God's word? I asked the Russian pastor who knew a bit of English. I asked him a number of questions, but one of them was, how many Bibles does your congregation have? He said, at best, maybe one in ten families have a Bible. Now, again, that may have changed since then. But at that time, he said to me, what they do is they literally take a Bible and they tear it up between several families who will take portions of the Bible home and they'll begin to memorize it. He told me that at the risk of imprisonment and punishment, many of his people met early in the mornings before work to study the Word of God and to memorize it and to pray. And I'll never forget what he said as we were leaving. He said, I know that you in the West have more Bibles than you know what to do with. Tell your people never to take God's precious word for granted. Tell them never to take their freedom to meet and to hear God's word preached for granted. We would do anything to each have a Bible so that we could read and study it. Well, you know, I left that church that day just a bit rebuked in my spirit. And I share it with us today, not to make anyone here feel guilty, but to sound an alarm, to issue a wake-up call to anyone who has been taking God's word and the freedom that we have to meet like this on weekends and during the week for granted. I'm wondering, and I'm just asking, are we sliding into complacency with respect to God's word and in our friendship with God? Do we hunger and thirst for the Lord and his word? Or is our adrenaline flowing elsewhere? Let's face it, we're all capable of letting our values slide. We're all capable um, of saying something's important, but not living that way. In fact, when I was in the Ukraine a couple of years ago, which was part of the Soviet Union and the oppression of communism during the time that we were in Russia, one of the comments of the pastors made to me was with the coming of religious freedom and growing prosperity to the Ukraine, the hunger for God and for God's word has been slowly diminishing. There's nothing like it was, you know, 30 years ago when the wall of communism came down. And the reason, he indicated, was more and more people were pursuing the lesser things. They're trying to satisfy the hunger in their soul for God with cheap substitutes in the form of money and possessions. Friends, we need to understand that God wants so much more for us than for us to give our lives to these cheap substitutes. We were made for so much more. Scriptures say he set eternity in our hearts. 
the good life that he has in mind for us involves so much more than worshiping the things of this world. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, if I make you a cup of tea and I say it's good, you're never going to know until you taste it. In the same way, the only way that we'll ever know God and experience his presence and power in our lives, the only way we'll ever really begin to appreciate and understand the truth of the Bible is by putting our full trust in God to be all in with him, to hear from God daily by being in his word, to taste and see that he's not only good, but he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I ask you again, is this truly God's word? If you believe it's God's word, how serious are you about embracing it, reading it, meditating on it, and studying it? We have so many things in our world around us that can distract us. And my prayer is, is that we would see that pathway for what it is. And we just wouldn't go down that road. But rather that we would renew our commitment to spend time with the Lord. To spend time in his word and to hear from him. To receive his direction and guidance for our lives. Can you say amen to that? Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Just invite you again just to open your hands to the Lord. Ask yourself these two questions. Number one is, Lord, what are you saying to me through our time together here today? And secondly, Lord, what are you calling me to do about it? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for the truth of your word and the way it tells us the truth about who we are and what we need. I just want to pray for anyone who is resisting that truth right now. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself by your spirit. 
And Lord, that you would not let them rest until they find their rest in you as their Lord and King. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would rekindle in us a renewed love for you and for your son, Jesus, and for your word. Oh, Lord, forgive us for cooling in our love for your word. We commit ourselves anew, Lord, to drinking in its wisdom, to learning its principles and precepts, to hearing from you through the word and to following its call to obedience. Lord, your name is like honey on our lips. Your spirit is like water to our soul. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you again for your word. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.